my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. For years, through countless magazine articles, we've been told that Ballinrass are fairly sedentary coastal creatures, happy and powerful enough to withstand the buffeting of tides and waves as they browse their way through a variety of tough-shell prey, which is readily dealt with by way of strong canine teeth and powerful jaws. Wormbaits also take the share, particularly out in the boat over shallow water reefs going down to maybe 40 feet or so. Leastways, that was the accepted wisdom. More recently, however, Ballinrass have been showing another side to their personality. Without doubt, it's always been there. It just needed somebody to realise and explore the possibilities of tapping into the more active predatory ways. That person is Devon angler Danny Parkins, who I'm linking up with here, and the technique he's going to discuss is fishing for Ballinrass with soft lures. So how did this link between the Rass and soft lures first come to your attention? The first time I saw rassing on lures was possibly a mutual friend of mine and of quite a few other anglers as a man called Keith White. He lives in the Channel Islands and he was very popular in the match scene back in the day. He also done a lot of distance casting and he now is very experimental in his angling. Fishes for all sorts. Every time you see him online, he's doing something crazy and very controversial, which has interested me. That's very much what I like to do. I'm not one to follow trends. So quite a few years ago, I saw him talking online about catching wrasse on lures. Not accidentally when he was bass fishing, but actually catching fish on lures and targeting wrasse solely on a day out. So I thought, cool, I've caught hundreds of wrasse when we were children with my dad and growing up. I thought, I, I want some of that. They fight really, really hard. They're beautifully marked. I thought, right, I'm going to give it a try. And that's kind of where it started. So you've picked up information suggesting that wrasse can be caught with lures. You may even have unintentionally taken them that way in the past yourself. So how did those first early attempts at deliberately catching them go? The first time I went out, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I kind of had the picture. I'd worked myself up. I'd done all the research online, which coincidentally was black bass fishing, the Texas rigging methods that they use to catch black bass in the States. So I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I had a rough idea what I was going to use by watching what Keith White had put online. I went straight down onto the rocks, and on the very first session, we had over 20 wrasse immediately, which blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. We got some fantastic photographs. I took my dad and my brother, and they caught, but not as many as me. It just happened then and then. The more we tried, the better it got, and you couldn't argue with the fact that they didn't want to take the lures. It was as soon as you put a lure on the bottom and you moved it slower than jigging it up and down that you sew for bass, we caught fish straight away. It was amazing fun and relatively simple, which is what really appealed to me. Give us a little more on this Texas rigging you've mentioned. Texas rigging is a way of rigging a soft plastic lure, which is weedless. You have what we call an offset worm hook, and you rig the lure with the hook almost embedded into the lure. You thread it on like you would in a normal worm. The hook point comes through halfway through the lure, and you nip the point back into the lure, so the hook point's actually hidden which allows it to be weedless, and that's they fish for cover for black bass and smallmouth bass in the States, where you can fish in this heavy cover, lily pads, and it allows you to not catch weed, which is perfect for wrasse fishing, because wrasse live right amongst the craggiest of rocks and kelp, so the method naturally crosses over into the saltwater for any saltwater species, but especially the wrasse. Armed with the knowledge that it could be done, I suppose the next logical step would be to determine with what level of regularity, which is easier said than done. For while Ras might be willing to take lures, unless you have the pattern and technique spot on, 
you might never know. So how did that early development work go? From the early days, from what I believe, and especially what I found, I was quite experimental in trying this, where a lot of guys would catch wrasse accidentally while bass fishing over rough ground. As soon as you slowed your lure down and it was close enough within the range, not forgetting that wrasse are very territorial, you would catch a wrasse instantly. A wrasse would hammer up, you'd grab your lure, and nine times out of ten, back in the day when you had monofilament lines, you would sometimes think you just generally had snagged the bottom, because by the time the wrasse had come up, grabbed your lure, swam straight back down into its hole, you not necessarily knew you had a wrasse on. But obviously with the introduction of braid, which we all use, you now knew that you had a take, and it was just a matter of time of getting that fish out of the snags before it actually snagged you up. And it kind of moved on from there. Lure-wise, it was a case of, like in fly fishing, matching the hatch. We were using natural-looking lures to look like gobies and worms and grubs on the bottom, three to four inches long, and we creep them slowly along the bottom or close to the bottom as possible in a slow manner, investigating all the nooks and crannies, and that's where the wrasse will take. So the lures are rigged to be snag-free on account of the heavy terrain. You also mentioned earlier missed accidental takes in the past where wrasse would grab at bass lures as they came into their range and territory. So what exactly is wrasse territory, and are you casting straight out then pulling back towards it, or perhaps at an angle to give you more time in it, and are the lures self-weighted to ensure that they fish exactly where they need to be? Yeah, we fished obviously with what I've mentioned before, the Texas rigging, which basically is a lead or tungsten cone in front of the lure, which is threaded onto the line, and you have the worm behind it with the weedless hook inside. As I say, that method's called Texas. You would fish that by bouncing it along the bottom, and when you go to a mark, as with freshwater, salmon fishing, coarse fishing, you're looking for the features. So we will go down onto the rock faces, we'd look for gullies and pits, because a lot of the South Devon venues and Cornish venues that we fish, the water is extremely clear. So with a good pair of Polaroid glasses on, you can see exactly where you're fishing. And it's a case of finding the ground that looks rassy. And when you see this ground, it really does look amazing. You've, you're deep weed cover, and it just screamed rocks and snags. And that's where you want to be fishing. The snaggiest, nastiest ground you can find, and that's where the wrasse are, living right in amongst those cracks and rocks. Obviously, wrasse aren't too fond of the deep water. So we found anywhere between 2 to 3 foot, down to about 20 foot maximum, but the average depth was sort of 12 to 15 feet, we found wrasse. As long as you fish the natural coloured lures, so the browns, greens and blacks. And in the spawning times, a little bit more brighter colours, they tend to be a bit more aggressive. And as long as you fish those lures, slowly jigging it along the bottom, investigating all the nooks and crannies with this weedless Texas method, you would catch wrasse straight away. And then a case of was uh, just finding the ground that was accessible enough for you to be able to drag the fish up, bearing in mind that these do fight very hard and you would be having to literally fight the fish out of the swim. It's not like you're fishing for bream on a canal where they tend to not really do much. These really do pull back. And in these sort of surroundings, you do have a bit of a fight on your hand. And that's obviously, I suppose, part of the love of why we do it. Do prevailing conditions such as wave patterns, ambient light or water quality of any part to play here? And can they also affect the colour of the lure you choose to use? The conditions that we fish in is really important. If you look at a wrasse, it is very much like a tench that lives in the salt. It's a fat body, a big old tail. They're not built for rough seas and fast-moving water, so we tend to find them in the slacks of the gullies. We've always found fishing them. If you can find gullies that point southeasterly, so they haven't got the prevailing seas in them most of the year, they're the most productive marks. They've got that shelter out of their way, you can't get big swells in there, they tend to hide, and if you have these rough seas, 
they will sit right on the bottom in these southeasterly creeks where you can't be disturbed by the big swell. They're just not built for moving in that sort of water. So the ideal sort of situation for me would be to turn up at the coast, judging saying having northerly, westerly winds, which down here in Devon and Cornwall will blow our seas relatively flat. And then you want that nice gin clear water. You want to be able to see the turquoise blue beaches and, and see all the rocks and details in the water. And if you're greeted with those sort of conditions, and as long as it's not overly bright, so say a nice bright to overcast day, and you, as long as you're in the right spots over the rough mounds, you're pretty much guaranteed to catch rats as long as you keep in that lure close to the bottom. I suppose one of the big attractions here is that because there's no bait involved, you can go pretty much at the drop of a hat. When conditions fall right, you can quickly make the best of things. Travelling light with just a rod, reel and bag of lures presumably is also a very big plus. Yes, of course. My upbringing was light lure fishing from a very young age, so the progression was just natural for me. To do with the safety-wise as well, when we're clambering down over these rocks, and some of it is, rock hopping is loosely used, but some of the marks that we go to can be quite dangerous. So the fact that we are fishing with just a rucksack, a net and your rod you are travelling exceptionally light, which is ideal for sort of after-work sessions or short sessions at the weekend where you say may have family commitments and stuff like that. You can literally pop down for a couple hours or literally shove your stuff in the back of the car and go. Especially for me, within half an hour I'm on the rocks and I'm ready to fish. You don't have to worry about bait going off and you can literally just pick my rucksack up, which is already set up and ready to go straight onto the rocks, which is really convenient, especially when people work full-time nowadays. And that's ideal. I mean, the more people work and the more people have these commitments, Fishing sometimes gets put on the back burner, but with light lure fishing, and especially the rock fishing for the wrasse, this sort of method is perfect because it is so off the cuff you can go at the drop of a hat as long as the weather allows. Having your hands free and little in the way of heavy gear, as you've said, is also a necessity for getting around safely at certain locations. But safety in its own right must also be a factor when you get down there fishing too. Every year, unfortunately, we hear of people being plucked from rock marks and drowned. So what are your recommended precautions in that regard? As you mentioned, the sea does not take prisoners, and I've seen it numerous times, people taking this for granted. You may be on a nice sunny day, flat, calm seas, but you always have to expect these swells, and I've seen it. I've been caught out many a times where we've had to come back from the edge because a bit of swells come in and it can be very, very dangerous. Obviously, my safety points would be for if you are doing this. Check the weather. Obviously, be cautious of the winds. As you said, when you're playing fish or landing fish, be cautious of your surroundings. It's all too quick to get very caught up in the moment with the excitement of catching a fish to turn your back on the sea when you have a big swell coming up behind you if, a, say, a boat comes past. So, obviously, because wrasse don't tend to like choppy seas or rough seas, you tend to not be wrasse fishing when the seas are big and big rollers coming crashing in across the waves. But you still have to be very cautious. A lot of guys will carry flotation aids, like the fishing jacket that I wear, which is like a utility vest, very similar to the new school fly fishing vests. They actually come with foam inserts, which allow me to be a little more, more buoyant if I was to fall into the water. But you can buy rock fishing life jackets. And also, footwear. The sort of places where we're ass fishing, you don't want to be turning up down there in flip-flops. Buy a nice pair of boots. I have lightweight trousers, so if I do get wet, I tend to dry off a lot quicker. And these are all things you have to take into consideration. But still light and still a pleasure to fish in, but you do need to be careful you are on the rocks in dangerous surroundings. And one more point which I would stress would be, obviously, you fish in pairs. I don't tend to go out on my own. I always fish with someone else, a friend, so there's always there to help. And obviously, first and foremost, you always tell someone where you're going. That way, if anything happens, at least someone knows where you are. 
So how do you get a big fish in up a sheer rock face? A six pound wrasse is hardly the kind of fish you'd want to try winching up and lifting in with just the rod alone. So what are the safety implications and procedures for netting a good fish? As I said earlier, the wrasse fight exceptionally hard. They will charge through rocks so you can damage your braid. They really do put up a good effort and it gets you very excitable. You tend to switch off to an extent and take for granted what you're doing. We carry nets, a very small net, almost like a trout folding net that you clip onto your rucksack. And that's essential that they extend out to sort of four or five foot, which when we're fishing on the ledges that we fish, that's close enough for you to get it in. If we're fishing, say, larger cliffs, I have a carp net um, handle, which I use, which is perfect. That extends out to about 10 foot. But I very rarely use that because a lot of the time I'm, I'm fishing very calm, specific locations and I can get away with just using the folding trout net. But like I said, you just have to be careful. Watch what's under your foot. Weed can be very slippery when the tide goes out and just be cautious of what you're doing. And remember that you are next to the sea in quite unforgiving rocks. So fish in pairs and you cover each other's back by doing that. Taking my earlier question about equipment one step further, can we now take a closer look at your tackle, starting by opening up your lure box? Based on your personal experimentation, what should we expect to see in there and why? Again, I'm fishing as light as possible, but I'm obviously I want to cover all eventualities. So a lure called a Senko, which is an American black bass lure, I would carry a selection of paddle tail shads, some crawl patterns which are like little lobsters and a few other jig heads, which are different from the Texas rig, which I would generally fish, but you never know, you may come across some bass or pollock where you want to put a jig on, which would be similar to, say, perch and pike fishing in freshwater. And I would carry a packet or two of a lure suitable for bass and pollock. Regarding to hooks and stuff, in the bag that I wear, I have pockets on the front. They're very similar to fly fishing vests. And I have the left-hand side of our packet, you'd have your hooks, your weights. And on the right-hand side, I would have my fluorocarbon and scissors with the lures in the pouches behind that. I tend to not carry boxes anymore. I find sealable packets are a lot more friendlier, a lot more lighter. And then they enable me to carry more in the same sort of pockets as, say, two little boxes. I can carry twice as much by carrying them in their lure sachets, which you buy from the shop. Because most companies nowadays create these sealable packets, which are really handy because some of the lures are scented. So you're not getting your boxes stinking with slime and aniseed flavorings. And also, um, not a lot of people are aware that certain brands use different rubber compounds. And if you mix the rubber compounds, they can melt all the lures in the box. You can ruin a whole box of lures by putting the wrong lure in amongst them. So fishing them in the sachets in their designated pockets on my chest eliminates that. So it's nice, clean and tidy, efficient. I can unzip the pocket and see what I've got there without having to pull a box out and rummage through trebles and uh, different hooks. They're all in their separate pockets, which for me, coming from a fast-paced lure fishing background, that's what I want to do. I don't want to have to be taking rucksacks on and off, so it's all arranged in a manner that I can get it to easy without taking stuff off because it's all on my chest. I'm interested in these scented lures. Yes, yes, a lot of our lures are scented. They're generally scented with garlic, aniseed and salts. They all have essential oils on them. Some of them absolutely stink. But it's different to a bait stink where I fish a lot of guys, I take them out for their first time, that are traditional sea anglers and they're used to getting squid all over their hands and mackerel. Whereas these will pong a bit, but with a wipe on your trousers, it dries. Some of them carry scents that will dry instantly. Some of them are a bit slimy, you can wipe off, but it's still clean. They do pong and it adds to the flavour. It also adds to the preservatives, like I say. Some of them do have preservatives in the bag, and you'll find that in the bag, some are covered in a juice and some are covered in a salt, and it all adds to preservatives and obviously flavourings. 
If you was limited to just one lure pattern in a range of colours and sizes, what would that be and why? My one lure without a shadow of a doubt, and everyone that fishes with me will laugh about this because I'm always ribbing them for not having it, or if they've got one and I've lost one, I will always try and pinch one back, will be a four-inch Senko in what we call motor oil. So green with black, red glitter, and sometimes blue glitter in it. It just seems to be my lucky colours, what I've caught a lot of big fish on. It's consistent. You can take two to three different types of lures out, generally Senkos and paddle tails, in millions of colours, but nine times out of ten, throughout the day, you will always see on the end of my line a green Senko with glitter in. And without a doubt, that is the lure that I would rely on every single time. And if anyone was to start rassing, that would be one of the first lures I would say, go and buy a couple packets of because they just don't fail. They're a very, very successful lure for me. That would be my killer lure. What are your thoughts on rods, reels and lines? Rods and reels, um, that's a tough one. I get this a lot online, on the forums. One of the questions you get all the time is, what rod do I buy? What reel do I buy? I fall in that camp very much that I don't tend to like to recommend gear like that because every angler is different. My kind of outfit would be a three to 4,000 size fixed ball reel and a seven to eight foot lure rod, which casts no more than 28, 29 grams, so an ounce in weight. But I know a lot of guys which will fish, predominantly say freshwater, come from a pike and perch background, would like maybe a slightly shorter rod because they're used to using six foot and seven foot rods. And then again, the traditional bass angler, the new school bass angler, will be used to nine and ten foot rods. But I'd say what you're looking for would be a rod that's comfortable for you, between seven and eight foot long, with a fast action, because don't forget, you're working the lure here, you're feeling the lure, and, and you're creating the lure's action. So you want a fast rod, so it's not too floppy, and not like an elastic band, with a balanced reel. There's no point taking out a super lightweight rod, which is mega sensitive, and then clamping on a big old bait runner that you'd use for dead baiting up the canal in the winter, because it's just not going to work. It's not going to be pleasurable for you. You're not going to get the accuracy that you want casting. So it's all about the balanced gear. But again, it's such a personal thing, but as a starting point, you want a seven to eight foot rod, three to four thousand reel, and go from there, really. Now, you mentioned earlier switching from mono to braid on your reels, but is there not a risk of abrasion leading to fish losses in such snaggy conditions? Yes, you're absolutely right. I use a particular brand of braid, which I find the best. Braid is one of these things, especially with the new brands coming in. First and foremost, I want something that's tough. So I don't want to catch a fish, it touched the slightest little barnacle or sharp bit of rock, and then ping and snap, because I just can't deal with that. I need to have reliable gear. For me, I want reliable braid, so I would fish with, say, a Power Pro or something similar to that. You can get roped into this, all these Japanese brands and Super Peas and Tournament Peas. They do have their place. Bass fishing off the rocks when you want to cast long distances, where you're not fishing around snaggy areas, they are superb, you can't beat them. But for me, I want something that is super snag resistant, because obviously I don't want to have the braid when as soon as it touches the rock, ping off. So for me, I want a reliable, tough braid, which is similar to say Power Pro. The more traditional braids, I would stay away from the new pandangle braids, which you see on the market. I want something between 20 and 30 pounds breaking strain, which is easy to tie, will bed on your reel nice and light, and it's tough. A lot of guys, especially the Japanese market, will use fluorocarbon all the way through, and obviously that has its pros and cons. Fluorocarbon is very, very snag resistant. It doesn't snap easily, it doesn't rough up on rocks, but it has its own problems with the way you light on a reel. Say if you're using a fixed ball or a bait caster, 
heavier fluorocarbon tends to have a lot of memory because it's very stiff. So that in its own creates its own problems. Whereas the braid will, as we found out for the last quite a few years now, will sit quite nicely on a reel. Gone are the days where you hear horror stories of braids giving bird's nest tangles which you can't undo and whatnot. I think that puts a lot of guys off. Braid is no longer like that. The manufacturers have cottoned on. They've improved their formulas of how they make it. And for me, I particularly myself will never fish without braid anymore. 99.9% of all my fishing is with braid. Obviously, I use fluorocarbon leaders, but the differences are, obviously, the stretch. Anyone that's fished with braid will know instantly the difference between braid and monofilament. And anyone that's fished with monofilament for years will automatically realise the difference when you put them on a rod with a lure on or even just dragging a lead along the bottom, you put them with braid and a nice sensitive rod and you see their eyes light up. And not only is it more of a pleasure to fish with, it opens your eyes up to the amount of sensation that you are losing by using monofilament. And as an angler, as a lure angler that relies on the feel and the sense of being able to fish, basically touch fishing, braid is unbeatable in my eyes. That's why I would use it. So far, all the talk has been about tactics. What about the fish themselves? I know for a fact that you had some pretty impressive specimens using this technique, and not surprisingly, also fish other than wrasse. Obviously, i fished for a good number of years now. I mean, this will be my seventh year where I've been pretty much specialising in saltwater fishing, and five years now where I've been wrasse fishing with lures solely to catch wrasse on lures. As you said, I've had numerous monster wrasse, plenty over five. I've had quite a few sixes now. I'm yet to break the £7 mark, which is my goal, and the day I do catch a £7 wrasse, quite a lot of people around the country will hear me shouting off the rocks because they'll be quite excited, and hopefully this year I can beat it with the weather. Fingers crossed, but I'll say sessions of wrasse can lead from sort of five wrasse a session right the way up to 30 wrasse a session. We've had numerous days now where we've been on the rocks on fishing these new marks, which no one fishes down. It's a privilege to scramble down rocks that you know hardly anyone has ever fished before. You get down there, you've got the excitement of a new venue, and then you have these days where you catch a wrasse off the wrasse off the wrasse. Every cast you get bites, and those days are brilliant. And they're, they're not on come on in wrasse fishing. It's not something that happens every once in a blue moon, as long as you're willing to travel. And a good tip, actually, while we're on this, if you want these red-letter days, you want to catch awesome fish, I put quite a lot of work into selecting the venues that I fish, and I live by Google Earth online. I will zoom in on areas that I want to fish, and I will find the little craggy rocks. And that, for me and my friends, that's all part of the day. It's an adventure at the end of the day. So we find the mark that we like, we'll clamber down the rocks, we'll look on our phones, you'll find the map, you get to the spot that you've spent a bit of research and time, and that's all part of the fun, catching the fish sometimes in these areas, because we do fish in some beautiful areas. You've seen the photographs, they are beautiful. So all part of the excitement is obviously finding a new venue, the lead-up to getting to that venue, catching big fish there, and obviously... Anyone who's seen pictures of the wrasse I've caught or seen in the magazine's wrasse, the colours are amazing. Blues, reds, greens, pinks. Every single fish is a different colour, and they are just a striking fish. One of my favourite freshwater fish is a perch, and that was always because they're very striking fish. The bright greens, the red fins, the proud dorsal fin. Now that is very similar to the wrasse. You have those same properties. It's a proud fish, and I remember a lot of people say this about perch, but a big perch or a big wrasse, if you get a specimen of these and you get a good photograph, you see it at your feet or in the net, and you really are chuffed. It is a moment that not only yourself, but the people you're fishing with will get excited about, and that really does appeal to me. I do like turning up at marks that we've never fished before. It's not exactly a stroll in the park. We have to clamber down the rocks and across fields, and then having these days where you catch massive fish, one after the other, and all your efforts 
the master plan you've created all comes to an epitome in front of you and you catch. And there's no better feeling. And as you see, photographs online of big beaming smiles, they're not faked. It is generally is happy faces when you go ras fishing because it is so much fun to catch these big fish. And it isn't only ras that these tactics catch. Yep, you catch all sorts when you're ras fishing. I mean, while I was fishing in Ireland one year, it was actually Pollock I was fishing for, but we catch a lot of ras while we're over there as well in the Barra Peninsula. Again, very, very untouched wild ground. And we're fishing in the gullies, and I was bouncing a jig along the bottom for ras and Pollock, and... I got a bump on the rod, and that felt, well, that's a bit strange. That isn't generally what I was expecting to feel. And then it takes again, and I strike in, and I catch a fish. I'm winding it in, and it doesn't feel right. And I'm saying to my friend Adrian, oh, I don't know what this is. It may be a tiny pollock or even a whiting. And that pops a John Dory. <laughs> and um, to anyone that fishes in the UK, especially Lure, John Dory is a very rare sight. And I couldn't quite believe my eyes. We scrambled it in, got the net, and got it out, took the photographs. And for me... It's something I wasn't expecting. It was a beautiful specimen, a big male John Dory, golds and luminous blues. That was a real red letter day for me to see that. Obviously, when you're fishing on the rock, especially in Cornwall and Devon, you tend to catch a lot of bass and big pollock. And as I say, they're good fun. They scrap well. And it's always nice to, especially when you're having a quiet day, you'll be fishing along and you get these bass come along. Because don't forget, they are on the similar gear. So it's not like you're totally surprised. They are there. But you can quite often, when you're not trying, it's always when you're not trying and you least expect it, something crops up. And I have friends that have caught PBs of other species, like wrasse and pollock, when they've been out trying to catch other things. And it's always a nice surprise to see it and a bonus fish at the end of the day. As you've said, though you might well be fishing for wrasse, anything can come along. So out of the species that regularly do, how do you rate each in terms of scrapping abilities and which are your particular favourites? Bass are always a pleasure to catch. They do like to scrap, nice long runs. But for me, the one that I go to, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I tried to go every year to Ireland to catch Pollock. Now, in the UK, you don't get as big a Pollock as you do over there, but generally when you catch a Pollock over a couple pounds, they pull like hell. They don't discriminate, they literally just go like stink. And you can always tell when you hook one, there's no finesse. There's no surprise, it'll just turn on you and just scramble itself straight into the rocks. And they really do pull, and I recommend to anyone that if you do try and catch various species around the rocks on this light lure gear, it is where, even though I prefer the ras fishing, because they also do fight like stink, in the winter months and the autumn, when there are lots of pollock about, give it a try. You'll catch them accidentally throughout the year, but when they, at the end of the year, when there's numerous amounts of pollock around, give it a try, because they do fight like hell. And obviously, we try as much as possible to practice catch and release on the rocks. Don't forget, Pollock and Bass do taste very nice, so if people do want to take one occasionally, then it's always a bonus to catch something like that that you can eat. But let's say, myself, I practice catch and release. Both light and hard rock fishing have, for many of the reasons already explained, grabbed themselves a fur old following over recent times. But is it just a current trend, or is there perhaps more to it than that? Is HRF a technique that we're going to hear more and more about over coming years, and will it, in your opinion, stand the test of time? I've always lure-fished, so for me it's always going to be here, because I've always been doing this in some kind of manner. Just because it's been labelled now doesn't necessarily mean we haven't been doing it. For me, obviously being involved in the trade, and working in the magazines, and, and having quite an online presence... I saw the early days, and I'll admit I was, especially with the more lighter methods, like the LRF, which is light rock fishing, I was a bit sceptical. To me, I want to go fishing, I want to catch a fish that's going to pull your string, and you can get a big photograph of it. So, for me, going out catching gobies and small flounder and these, these micro-species on the LRF gear, I initially thought, oh, God, it's a bit of a craze, and oh, it's something to do when the weather's crap and you can't fish on the rocks. But now I've got more of an understanding, and a lot of my friends fish it, 
I've seen them catch some incredible fish on LRF gear. And the term finesse is used a lot because some of these guys are really tying their gear down to finesse techniques. And I'm seeing a lot of what I used to see in the UK match scene, freshwater-wise, these light diameter lines and light gear catching considerably large fish and taking a skill. And I've always said this, anyone can dangle a maggot in a lake or a lure in in front of a pike and a pike would grab it and you'll generally catch a roach if they're there. But tying down these LRF techniques and the actual techniques behind it, it is an art form. And these guys that are doing this are very skilled anglers. And seeing this progress, there's more and more techniques which are coming over from Japan and USA. And it is no longer a fad. This is a legitimate technique, which if you are into your techie angling, like the carp anglers and the big match scenes, this is as good as technique as these, because it all has all these, these extra techie finesse methods that you can do, different rigs, different hooks, balancing your lures to key balance them, critical balance lures. It goes on, and I think the entire industry initially missed that point. But now it's been here, it's been here for sort of four or five years, and people have realised it's here to stay, and it's only progressing, and every year we see brands jump on and improve the situation every time. And for me, the more these brands get involved, and as long as they promote it in a good manner, they don't just jump on the bandwagon, as long as they promote it, and use the terms correctly, and getting the exposure, and getting the young guys involved, because at the end of the day, the future in this fishing are with the teenagers that we're seeing on the magazines and online, and getting their buy-in. At the end of the day, angling, historically for me, especially with the pike angling scene, has got very stale over the years. HRF and LRF, these new methods, for me, have really opened up the eyes to the public at what can be done. People that may have been getting bored with sitting on the cod rods every winter from the Bristol Channel, not catching anything for session after session, can now, relatively cheap, buy really, really nice finesse gear and go and catch fish time after time in the harbours. And the side of it, which not a lot of people consider, children. What better method if you take your son and your daughter out in a harbour and catch them fish? It's these memories that LRF and HRF create are what will hook these kids for the rest of their life. And that, for me, is very important. At what point does LRF become HRF? What would classify LRF and HRF? Well, LRF is anything sub 10 grams. So that's including the lure, your hook, weights involved. So anything under 10 grams is LRF fishing. HRF fishing would be 10 grams and above. That would be your more your ras fishing and your bass fishing. And you'd see LRF targeting more of your mini species, so your gobies, your blennies, flounder, mackerel, which if anyone wants to start LRF, mackerel fishing on the harbour wall, they pull like stink on that gear and is easily accessible angling. So yeah, above 10 gram, HRF, below 10 gram, LRF. That's a, an easy rule of, to go by. If, as you say, you feel so strongly that this is the future, Make the case here why people should seriously give it a go. We all go fishing, especially nowadays with online and and magazines. I think everyone tends to get a bit too serious, and they've forgotten why we go fishing. I go fishing religiously every week, and for me, it's to go out and have fun with my friends, have a laugh, catch some fish. Sometimes catching the fish is a bonus. Now, LRF and HRF are a simple, clean, effective method which enables you to go out in groups of friends and just enjoy the fishing, having a laugh. You take some pictures. Even if you're not a competitive person, when you're fishing in two or three of you and you're LRF fishing and you're catching quite a lot of fish, and when you're RAS fishing with the HRF gear, and I've caught a bigger one than Andy or I've caught a better one than Mark, you're catching a lot of fish and you get that banter and that competitive side of you. And it just fuels what you're doing. And And for me, what better way to catch fish than to be able to go out and catch it on lures? Not sure about the LRF bit, 
particularly the smaller fish species. Though as you've said, on days when you can't fish outside due to conditions, it's better to fish inside even for smaller species than not to fish at all. But the larger species, and in particular the wrasse, certainly interest me. I must admit I've had plenty of big balloons over the years and know only too well how hard they can fight. But I think what would sell it to me most of all is the ever-ready tackle bag. That ability to go at the drop of a hat, reliant only on a bag full of lures. The fact that I've no head for heights would be another matter. Had it been on the cards 30 years ago, I may well have really seriously gotten into it. As it stands, I'll probably observe its progress now with interest as an outsider, grateful for the very detailed advice you've given us here on the subject. <laughs>